मशीन लगाऊंगा इस साइड से आलू घुसेगा उस साइड से सोना निकलेगा Hi and welcome back to Attention Please podcast on Talking Stuff Network. We are recording this on 28th October India time. We were on a puja break last week and to make up for this we have a extra special episode with a guest. But I leave it to your host to introduce our guest. Welcome back Arnab. You've transitioned from your puja mode to Halloween mode. You must love this time of the year. Yes, Halloween is my favorite uh is my favorite festival now that I'm in the US. So that's this is the only thing that i have adopted from the american lifestyle pretty much everything else is the way it used to be in india this is the only thing i mean i not not nfl not uh, baseball just the halloween part uh, this is the thing which i just cannot do without so hello everybody welcome back um from from the break um thank you for those of you who noticed that the that the podcast was off last week which means at least means that, you, that you're listening uh which is which is which is very good So uh today without further ado uh normally what we do is we do the news first and then we transition to the main item of the day today we're going to do it a little bit different because uh, my guest uh you'll you'll not be here with, with us for a long time so I just want to get as much out of him as possible so my guest today is uh Suhail Banerji also he's the guy who has at @suhail on Twitter this is not Suhail said by the way so please uh please uh, save your uh, brickbats uh so Suhail and I you know go back many years much more than a decade um and i've always found him to be he's he's as i said as i've said to many people this guy like radiates success if you meet him and i say this with, with absolute honesty he is he, he has that aura about him and i don't say this about everyone and i've always been in in awe of his of that success that's around suhail and i I I loved his writings I love the way he writes he also also gets to read my books usually before they are written so he's one of the first guys I sent my sent my written books to because I really value his uh, his feedback so today he's and he also started as a matter of fact I owe him another debt of gratitude because he bought this uh, Yeti mic and I think he tweeted about it if I'm not wrong and I decided on that day because Amazon was giving a sale to buy this mic and that's how the whole podcast thing started because I've been wanting to do this podcast for ages and I've never gotten around to doing the first thing which is buying the mic so without any further ado Suhail thank you for coming on uh, the attention on first I am elated to be here I I had my first and only experience i guess of those that happened to the guests that waited on coffee with karan as karan <laughs> waxes eloquent obviously everything you said is is way exaggerated but thank you very much for the very kind words okay all right so um what we want to discuss so there are two very unique things about sohel which i wanted to discuss and then there's these two things are for the general public and i have a third question for him which is for my own benefit which i will ask at the end but the first thing about sohel which many of you may not know is that he he supports sri lanka as a cricket team and correct me if i'm wrong but even when sri lanka <laughs> is playing india you support sri lanka am i correct i wish it was not true anymore but unfortunately it has been the case from the time i started watching cricket it coincided and and this is this you have to be very specific here it coincided with the 96 world cup but not at the final it actually started from the very beginning that's when i started watching cricket and from that game in delhi where uh, manoj prabhakar was converted into an off spinner and led to his eventual retirement 
till today i have been a sri lankan supporter so let me clarify that again so in the 1996 semi final between india and sri lanka you were supporting sri lanka i was actually a 12 year old in the stand somewhere in indian gardens and perhaps the only smiling face in all of eden gardens so i'm very curious and please there's this two part question here first of all why sri lanka is it just was it just because of jay surya um and how has people like do people know that you because in india this is a very this is a very fraught thing right to support a country which is not india and uh, why would and and given that you know while we as bengalis we don't have that history that you know people from tamil nadu have with sri lanka i mean you would be in serious trouble for instance if you were supporting bangladesh against india but uh, how i have not met anybody in, in in my life not that i have met a lot of people by the way that, <laughs> that indian support sri lanka so tell us a little bit more about what exactly drew you to not just sri lanka but i can understand in 1996 to consider them as some sort of an underdog but then over the years how have you supported them who have been your favorite players and do you still support them on uh, on uh, i have uh, amongst the very few qualities i have one i feel is loyalty and every thing or person or team that i have started liking with or supported with i've somehow stuck to them through the years so that's the only reason right now i support sri lanka i i, I really wish i could get rid of that today but uh, sri lankan support started in 96 which as i said coincided with when i started watching cricket i was a little bit of a late bloomer um, i have few memories from hero cup and stuff before that when i was a normal indian indian supporter um so 96 world cup is when i started following cricket from that very first game i think it was in england new zealand nathan asel scored a century and all of that so yeah. uh, i was all geared up for uh, for this big tournament and i was a moderate india supporter so i think i'll be i'll be putting my parents in some jeopardy here because i will i will share something in public and i'm sure your show is heard by by more people than they know uh they my mom was one of the many imran khan fans so much so that she has had instances where she ended up supporting pakistan over india no she's not a pakistan supporter in general but back in the day when imran played she had a very soft spot for him and uh my dad um was an india fan like all people of his vintage but he um was more of a viv richards and west indies supporter not against india but like they had a very strong support for these other teams as well so growing up i saw i saw a support for india and other countries all more or less similarly and that maybe had something uh, to do with how I, I i took it as if in in a game in in a sport of cricket all teams are equal and you really pick your favorite and support leaving the patriotic national angle aside and and that just stuck to me it's it's very weird now now that i look back and i realize what i have done uh, maybe if i were to do it again i wouldn't but as uh, as uh, shahrukh khan said to rephrase him paraphrase him you love a cricket team only once unless it's kolkata night riders <laughs> i i actually am a kolkata night riders supporter as well Um, we'll come to that. We'll yes. come to that. That's, that's question number two. But uh, but Sri Lanka, tell me, uh, tell me who your favorite players in in Sri Lanka. So so is there a particular style of playing of Sri Lanka that you particularly admired? At I mean, in the ninety six. 
So, so again, it started with 96. It started with the underdog story, the Jayasuriya Kaluvitharana uh, opening partnerships, which unfortunately, by the time I was actually at the stadium in Eden, I, I've never even seen them bad because they were out because I came 10 minutes in and I think they had lost two or three wickets by then, including Gurusena. Uh, however, um, so those two played a big part in it. And again, I was reading up a lot about cricket and the World Cup and I saw how West Indies and Australia were not going to Sri Lanka. And so they basically got those two games for free and uh, ended up reaching the quarterfinals where they thrashed England in a way. I have not seen very few teams thrash other teams in a World Cup uh, in the quarters. And then the India famous India game happened. Um, in, in terms of Sri Lanka, my favorites obviously remain Jaisuriya. Uh, this is more of a heart versus head sort of. So my heart favorite is Jaisuriya. But by far, I mean, without a question, Murlitharan is the greatest cricketer or a sports person to have come out of Sri Lanka. Um, like many of you core Sachin fans who have a interesting love-hate sort of relationship with Kohli, I had that with Jayavardhane and Sangakara. I have no doubt in my mind they are greater batsmen than Jaisuriya, but... If, if I were to pick one person, as Arno asked me, it would be Jay Surya. That means Sri Lankan cricket to me. Okay, that's that's fair. Again, with, with, with Sachin, my relationship with Sachin is that I, I immensely admire him as a cricketer, but I'm immensely also, this, with the same passion, unimpressed by him as a person. So, I mean, the, the kind of platform that he has uh, and the very little he chooses to do with it, is just an extremely disappointing aspect of Sachin Tendulkar, the persona. As a cricketer, I have very little to say about him, except that he wrote a very crappy authorized biography. Uh, that, that, yeah. Yeah, that, that too. But that, that comes to Sachin as a person who, who I've been terribly disappointed with over the years, particularly when you have seen more of him as a person and less of him as a player. But coming to the Sri Lankan team, my favorite Sri Lankan player always was... Uh, uh, Arvind yeah. De Silva. The thing about him was in the, you know people that game is like etched in my mind the semi-finals and that's the strange thing about growing old that I I just every game that's happened since the two thousands is just a blur in my memory I I can't disambiguate games anymore but ninety six that game I can almost remember ball by ball even though I wasn't at the ground I, I saw it on television. Um, I remember the, the main thing was that there comes, especially when you have such needle encounters, like the like a semi-final being played at the Eden Gardens. And this was before they redid the Eden Gardens. So this was Eden Gardens when you could actually get 100,000 people into the ground. So, you know, in a game like that with Sri Lanka, we've never really been on such a stage. That the time in which you actually walked into the stadium, so yeah, when there were three wickets down, you could see it. I mean, normally most other teams would have folded at that point. And any other team, if you have the like, and, and Sri Lanka in that in that tournament, if you remember, had never been challenged on the middle order because Jaisuriya was just doing it himself. Yep. Mostly. And so they never had any pressure. So normally, what happens to a team in a tournament like this, especially when a team is not like, let's say, the Australia of uh, middle two thousands, late two thousands. Uh, yes. Uh, unless, unless you're that strong, or like West Indies, which had multiple defense in depth during their best days. Most teams would would struggle because they would they would now come to a place. There would be people who would be playing who are not used to even for the last few matches who have not been in that situation. And I had expected at that point of time with the Sri Lankan with the with the Sri Lankan innings as it was at that moment for somebody to play defensively for some time. That was the common wisdom in those days. But I remember Arvind Jisilva came out and he attacked. 
he attacked and he was attacking his shots. I still remember they were like flying off his blade. He was he was basically cover driving Shrina through the covers again and again and again. And we had seen a master class of driving through the covers a few games back. Where was it? A few games back? I think a few games back. Yes, when um, yes, the Lara century eliminated. I don't know if you remember that game, South Africa. Yeah. Yes, Lara uh, Pat Simcox was bowling and he was and Lara kept on like every time Pat Simcox would move the fielder, Lara would drive through the place where he moved it from time and time again. It was a masterclass. But again, West Indies were not under that amount of pressure that Sri Lanka was. And again, in those days, you always yeah. thought of Sri Lanka as a Sri Lanka man. They're like, you know what? They're just having a good. They're just having a good run. This is it. This is the day when they finally become Sri Lanka as we knew, knew them. <laughs> you know when when Graham Lebroy was their star bowler. So, so then this guy comes and he just attacks Kumble and then he gets out. He plays this enormously aggressive innings, which actually maintains the momentum that Jayasuriya would have done, perhaps not at his pace, but he does maintain a like a runner yeah. ball. I think and. And as a Sri Lankan supporter, since I am here as a Sri Lankan supporter, I have to say one person who never gets enough credit in that innings. I think that the silver innings has been spoken about a fair bit, but Mahanama actually gave him good support. He played the the anchor position, allowing the silver to prosper and flourish. But let's not forget, Mahanama was there till till much later, playing I think twice the number of balls and and helped Sri Lanka reach that two fifty odd score that evening. Yes, I, I, he, he played a very good innings. It wasn't helped by the fact that Ashish Kapoor, <laughs> it was his name, I think, was bowling, uh, was bowling a leg side line to him. And uh, Mahanama just had to play it behind. And so this was, it was ridiculous at that point of time. But I think the initiative was taken yep. by that brilliant innings of Arvind the Diesel. Of course, he played a great innings in the final too. But, uh, but, 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 but the fact was for, for me, among my favorite Sri Lankan players, I actually have, and here I'll, I'll, here I'll draw issue with you. I always had a very poor impression of Murali Dharan as a bowler. I, I felt that he was he was not a spot on uh, the two other great bowlers. For me, the greatest bowler of that era, by far, without any, is Vasimakram. There is there is nobody who comes even remotely close to the genius that Vasimakram was. And I even today I watch old videos of Vasimakram just to see. I mean, how you don't see anybody like that nowadays. Again, between Warren, I, I could never really get over that bend in his arm. Uh, I never could. I mean, it could have been natural. It could have been whatever it is. But I, somehow that that thing, it's, I just could never get over. It's amazing we're discussing it even in 2018, almost 19 now. Yes, yes. So I, I could. And, and again, I think Vishen Singh Bedi he himself was like very much against Murali Dharan, if you remember. And he was also very much against Harbhajan also. He said, you know, Murali Dharan basically gave the license to a generation of bowlers from Saeed Ajmal to, to, to just like, OK, it's natural. This is this is a flex which works. This is fine. And this was not there before ever. Nobody. This was this name became the new normal, uh, especially with respect. It, it did clear all all questions, though. Officially and legally, he was fair. Yes, yes. So officially and legally, we, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm not disputing that. But that's why I'm not saying that. I mean, again, uh, for me, that that kind of sullied his his legacy for me personally. So I never really considered Murli Dharan. I actually preferred Vas, Chaminda Vas over Murli Dharan. I, I thought, I think, 
I think India had a much bigger problem playing Chaminda Vaz than they had of yes. Indian Cup. I remember the Independence Cup, the very first ball, he got Dada out bold. Yes. So Chaminda Vaz, Indians had a problem with Chaminda Vaz. Indians in general have a problem with people bowling left arm. Uh, there was a Pakistani. <laughs> you don't need to be a Makram for that. There was no. There was a Pakistani bowler called Azim Hafiz who had who didn't have two fingers. Or, and we he was like uh, this was uh, the nineteen. This is way before your time. This was in nineteen. Which year was it? Now I've forgotten. Possibly eighty two. When Pakistan came to toured India, this was Imran Khan wasn't there. So this was the there was neither Imran Khan nor was there Safraz, uh, Safraz Nawaz. So it was a. Second string uh, Pakistan team. Javed Miyadad was obviously batting, and then in the, I remember this. We had trouble facing Azim Hafiz, okay, and he was not a great bowler because obviously none of you guys know his name. So we had trouble, and the only person who could play him was Angshuman Gaikwad, who scored two hundred runs against him in Jalandhar. This, and my my life was so terrible. I watched every ball of that innings. And I still remember it. That's, you remember that, that, that's it 35 of, years later. That's the curse of my memory. I remember uh, Ankhuman Gaikwad batting, scoring 200 runs in Jalandhar. But 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 moving on, moving on. Uh, and so you you had a kind of love hate relationship between. So do you think the Sri Lankan team? I personally feel that the Sri Lankan team, which uh, lost to Australia in the World Cup in uh, 20, yeah was was 2007. 2007 was was a better team in terms of uh, the. In terms of how well rounded, it so was, yes, I agree with your with your assessment there. And the other thing I want to I want to highlight, which people forget because they didn't end up winning all of that, is Sri Lanka was not just a one uh, one trick pony. Two thousand ninety six, obviously fine. Let's leave that aside. But after that, two thousand three, they went to the semifinals in South Africa, which nobody thought they'll do anything there in those wickets. Two thousand seven, two thousand eleven, two consecutive World Cup finals and losses. And even in the two T Twenty World Cups, they actually went to three consecutive finals and then won the won the one in Bangladesh against India, thanks to Yuvraj Singh. So Sri Lanka had a had a decently long patch, and well, now now it's all come crashing down. I I haven't seen Sri Lanka in the early eighties, but I hear they're far worse than they were when they played their first test. And at what they're doing now, they c- cannot go much further down. I think. In the early eighties, one big advantage that Sri Lanka had was their umpires. <laughs> so, so there there was this series in which, and again, I didn't see that series, uh, but there was a series in which their umpiring was so terrible. I think Shri Shrikanth had like a meltdown uh, at some point of time. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there's no footage of that, but I think there is footage on YouTube of uh, Shakur Rana umpiring. Do take a look. Shakur Rana in Sri Lanka. In some, or Shakur Rana in Pakistan. No, no, Shakur Rana in yeah, Pakistan. Yeah. In some cases, he gives he gives the batsman out before the fielders have started. <laughs> like ball touches his foot, his finger is up. Like that, that, that fast, immensely fast, immense. Like, you, you could, I've never seen umpire put his finger up that fast. Uh, but moving on, why do you think Sri Lanka? This is the final question I'll ask you about Sri Lanka before moving on to the next topic. Why do you think Sri Lanka is currently this bad? So, yes, this is not going to be your most popular podcast. We why? are first talking about Sri Lanka, and then we are talking about Sri Lanka of today, which I don't think anyone besides me watches. Why is it so bad? How can it? How can it be that a team? And you are right. It was not a one trick. It was not a flash in the pan. They consistently maintained. A rather high standard of cricket for about ten to fifteen years, in which they were always a contender in multi-country mm-hmm. championships. I absolutely agree. So, 
and now this. How does that? Um, I will. I'll. I have mostly a second-hand uh, answer to this because I haven't really been close to Sri Lankan cricket, except for I have read anything Andrew Fernando has written, and I've also written the book called uh, "The Wind." Wind. Below my willows, uh, Vikram. We'll need to edit this before I give you the actual name. So uh, this was written by a, a someone very close to Sri Lankan cricket, and it was horrifying to read how that game goes on. So if you think there is corruption and there is nepotism and there is everything wrong with BCCI, you just need to look at what the Sri Lankan cricket board does. I mean, and it's an interesting day today with uh, with the prime minister and president swapping places and whatnot going on with Rajapaksa back. Uh, that country, it's it's a wonder that they achieved whatever they did with the kind of stuff that went on for the amount of time. That coinciding with with all of our uh, Sangakaras and Jayawardenes retiring after the 2015 World Cup, uh, it, it led to the perfect storm. We had no um, uh, fallback option and it, it shows. Like right now, as you said, or I don't know if it's been public yet, uh, Everybody would rather tour Sri Lanka than even West Indies to get the records in. I I honestly don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And then with Herat retiring after the first test, uh, I think we have a long winter and, and many long winters ahead of us. I, I think what is the most damning thing about Sri Lanka, which is the most dis- is that none of them none of them are considered worthy enough to play in IPL. <laughs> so them functioning as a team. Sometimes you have like, uh, sometimes you have like Afghanistan where you have like, okay, as a whole, maybe there's not a great number. As a whole, they're not a great team, but they have two or three, at least one amazing player. Okay. Would walk into any side, possibly one of the best bowler today. But Sri Lanka has no one. It's not just a question of, okay, they're not gelling together as a team, but they have individual performance. Like, like West Indies, for instance. Um, they do have good individual performers. They just don't feel motivated enough to play for the West Indies team because they don't pay them money. But they're, uh, they're very successful as individuals. But like an Andre Russell, for instance. I, I, I will add one thing to your West Indies comment, though, and I have noticed this over time. West Indies is absolutely horrific in the test format they're not that bad in one day and they're pretty good in t20s like in spite of all that goes on with their government uh the governance and the and the board they are still a force to reckon with if they come to a t20 world cup and and some one-off one day games but sri lanka is not that as you correctly said we have nothing like when you have when you have angelo matthew and tisano Pereira as your best that that bar is not that high angelo matthews has been for me and I also do follow Sri Lankan cricket, uh, but Angelo Matthews for me has the biggest been, been the biggest disappointment because I think that there was an expectation that he was a very good player that he would kind of step in after uh, Jayawardhan and Sangakara has left and he would kind of lead the next next generation. But he's just been, I think, injury plus the fact that he's absolutely totally uninspiring and lacks you know a smidgen of a character. That, that he's been a, a letdown. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I mean, Tirimane at one point of time, I just, none of them have panned out and they don't even, it's not just they don't play in IPL. None of them play in any of the international T20 leagues, which I think is really, really dangerous. This is, this is, this is terrible. And if you follow, you see what has been going on with their captaincy as well, right? Like Angelo Matthews is is the normal scapegoat after every few tournaments he's dropped. And then Malinga is the other one. I mean, at this stage, obviously, it's the sunset of his career. But even a few years back, 
you would try to put the blame on these two because these were the only two names you could put blames on. For the for the rest of the team, people don't even know who they are. So no use saying, oh, we lost because of this person that you don't know. Right, right. Okay. So now moving on to the other inexplicable thing that, that you love, uh, Shah Rukh Khan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I at least have a little more support on this one than Sri Lankan cricket yes, in yes, India. You have, you, have, you, have, you have the army behind you uh, on this. But tell me a little bit about uh, why you... I know, and again, for those... I know how, how what a big fan of Shah Rukh Khan you are, not just... Not just a fan, as in I'm a fan of Sachin kind of fan, but almost a religious reverence for him. Uh, so I just wanted to, I just wanted you to uh, like explain or deconstruct why that is the case, and 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 has the feeling been like, have your love or your bhakti for Shah Rukh Khan has it maintained it, or do you think that your bhakti is fraying a little bit now, or do you think it's as as strong as it was before? So. I think Shah Rukh Khan, the actor, um, my feeling towards him is maybe somewhat like your reverence towards Mithun with a fair amount of uh, um, uh, sarcasm and um, hoping against hope that he will finally deliver. So Shah Rukh Khan, in terms of his movies, I think he has uh, slipped through most of them that I've released in the last 10 years or so, with the odd exception of a Chuck De here and I feel fan there. Um, Shah Rukh Khan, the person, is a totally different story for me, as you said. And I, 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 I was about to say that usually Bhakt is thrown around as a very um, derogatory term, but I, I don't mind saying I'm an SRK Bhakt, SRK, the, the, the personality uh, Bhakt, because I owe a lot of a lot of whatever I am, which is not much, to him. I was an introvert. I wouldn't even say thank you to people when I was a kid, and I have been an SRK fan since since circus so i was uh, uh since i have conscience consciousness um i saw this person come through bring the amount of energy that he did and obviously his initial movies were also very different from anything anyone had ever seen as a mainstream actor doing uh negative roles in Bazigar and Dar and Anjam and so on. And also in his, particularly, I would say, in his interviews, in the award shows, in his in his uh, conferences, acceptance speeches, that has inspired me. And I would say that inspiration has actually increased over time, unlike the movies which have, uh, on the other hand, uh, not really. My expectations from those movies are not nowhere as much as they used to be 10 or even 15 years back. Um, so like any relationship, this one is nearing what, almost 30 years now, the relationship changes, but this one is based on such a strong foundation of love and respect and, and inspiration that I think that is, um, absolutely there. But let, let's dig a little deeper into this. So how has Shah Rukh Khan helped you overcome your, uh, shyness, um, that for instance, Amir Khan hasn't, like Amir Khan is pretty articulate too, right? Um, he is, yes. Amir Khan, and I have actually started enjoying Amir Khan movies a lot more over the last few years, but that's a different story. So going back to the early to mid 90s, when when I started seeing more of Shah Rukh Khan, the, the, the person off screens, which is more of his interviews and stuff. And um, something, something triggered in me and it said... If I, I want to be like this person, I want to be as interesting as this person, or I want to be as confident as this person. Because when he comes on screen, uh, again, not in his movies, let's leave the movies aside for, for a moment. When he comes 
on the small screen in some interview or something, there, there is a certain amount of not just confidence, but uh, of owning the space, of owning this, uh, the stage, which comes in a very casual, carefree way. And obviously, we have all noticed it over the years that changed a little into this uh, humor-laced arrogance. But initially, that wasn't even there because maybe he didn't have enough to be arrogant about. And all of that led to... Um, the shyness that you mentioned, the diffidence that I had in myself as a as an 8, 10, 12-year-old uh, fade away. And um, in general, he helped put the belief in me and I'm sure millions of others that it doesn't matter entirely who you are and where you come from. You can achieve what you want to. Uh, his achievement is at a totally different scale. But seeing him do that and interestingly or ironically it goes back to the Sri Lanka story as well his is yet another underdog story like in this Bollywood of nepotism he came from nowhere with no one and and he did whatever he did so that story was inspirational and that continues to be today okay well that's that that's rather interesting I unfortunately never never really and, and this this might be me uh, more than anything else but I've never personally found inspiration in in any person or in any f- faith or anything really um, I've always been uh, who I am uh, for good or for bad but Shah Rukh Khan yes I was a huge fan of Shah Rukh Khan at one point of time uh, but not because of him as a person but because of him for his movies uh, this was this was when I was an undergraduate I was like 20 or 19 and and he was so very different from everybody else who was acting at that point of time Amitabh Bachchan had reached the, like the he was doing <clears throat> uh he was doing uh, he was doing movies which he shouldn't have been doing akela and uh, <laughs> this was this was his his, his, his terrible phase uh, i mean even mohabbate you could say it was a terrible phase but at least he was acting his age and this was the time when i was also amitabh bachchan fan but amitabh bachchan was was very difficult to be a fan in those days with amitabh bachchan the kind of movies he was doing and so shahrukh khan he was he was the next generation and he was he was doing movies. He was so energetic on screen. And the note, those days, I mean, he was used to Jitendra, who would just move his hands like this. And that's it. That was his dancing. It was very low energy for, for everyone. Uh, Amitabh Bachchan was high energy, but he was high energy in a, in a different way. Uh, Shah Rukh Khan, he was like somersaulting across the screen. There was acting. There was a lot of hamming and overacting. But I liked the hamming and overacting. I mean, hey, even Al Pacino hams. Let's call it out. He hams. <laughs> but you would like to see it. Okay? He says, hooah. Of course, he's hamming, but you like it. He has that style. I, I, I like to see that. So again, I don't want everybody to have a style, but if you have it and if I like it, then sure, I want to see it. But the problem with Shah Rukh was that even though he started his life taking some very risky moves, you know, as, as a villain, he kind of owned that space. Um, it was a very risky thing to do in those days. And nowadays, you can say that's okay because people are taking a lot of risks. You have multiplexes, you know, things work. They're, you have a much more diverse array of tastes. But in those days, it was uh, just not there. So I really like like that. But then over 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 the ages, and he, he basically became a prisoner of his own uh, of his own own image. He could not come out of it. Uh, you know, he he was kind of locked into this scene, and he was he had enough influence. I felt. I understand that you do these things when you're at the early stage of your career. I mean, even Amir Khan made a lot of shitty movies in the earlier stage of his career. But, but on the, that's the sad part. 
it's a, it's so weird here. I'm, I have come here as a Sri Lanka and Shahrukh Khan fan, but I'll actually spend most of the time bashing them. Shahrukh Khan did all, took all those risks early on, right? And he's had this reverse career to Amir Khan's when he had nothing and he, he took all these risks when he had everything to lose. And exactly as you said, as he became bigger yes. and now he has reached the stage where he gets that power award every year for 20 years from Filmfare, he has totally stopped, forget taking risks, he's even, he stopped experimenting. Again, except for a few one-offs here and there. It's so, it's super disappointing as a fan. It was super disappointing to me. I, I understand. I mean, Amir Khan, even nowadays, he does, usually he does one very crappy movie and then he does two good movies and then he says, oh, I need to make more money. I need to do a crappy movie. So I think this is one of his crappy movie year cycles. So he's doing, what, what's the name of that movie with Katrina Kaif? And, <laughs> Thumbs up in the sun. Obviously, this is, this is like, like Mela for the new age. You can just see it from the... <laughs> but this is this is what he's doing for money. I'm absolutely fine with you doing some movies for money. But come on, if you make one movie for money, then make two good movies. Yeah. Something which is like moderate. And Shah Rukh Khan, unfortunately, you know, it's fan. I, I had high expectations from fan. It was good in the first uh, first episode till the interval. Then it just went downhill. It just just uh, just like imploded. Where where Shah Rukh Khan the guy, where Shah Rukh Khan the persona came in ruined it. As long as it was the Shah Rukh Khan the fan, it was good. Because Shah Rukh Khan was doing stuff which only he can do. But then it just became yet another Shah Rukh Khan vehicle. And I just, just hated it after this first half. So... I, I I actually only think of fan as that first half because that to me is all that mattered. Uh, as you said, the second half, um, he could have as well not done that second half. Rice was a big disappointment as well. Okay, I I will. This is exactly where I come out as a Shahrukh Khan fan. Raiz was not a disappointment for me. Raiz to me was Shahrukh Khan the star back. This was not Shahrukh Khan in Happy New Year where he sleepwalked through it. It seemed like it, it's somewhere he acted. It was super filmy. It was very dramatic, maybe even hammy, but he at least acted. He put in some effort is, is the way I looked at it. I actually enjoyed Raiz. The thing with Shahrukh Khan is that he's he's inherently suited to doing dark roles. Totally agree. He he's very good in them uh, because he because he can because he can act um, because he can act. I mean, Salman Khan can't do a dark role because again he's he's not, and I don't think even his fans will say that he's not a good actor and he, he doesn't claim to be. But but Shahrukh Khan, whenever he he gets slotted into the romantic roles and he's kept on doing romantic roles years after it, it made sense for him even to to do to do these roles. Uh, to the extent that he's kind of, he's now at the stage where if he keeps on doing romantic roles, he's getting into the Devanand territory. Devanand, late career Devanand territory at this point of time. And I hope he'll be sensible enough to kind of walk back. Uh, even Amitabh Bachchan got into that domain for some time. And it's very difficult for people and we see it with uh, Mahindra Singh Dhoni and we have seen with other cricketers of uh, Sachin Tendulkar of when to, when to let go and when to transition to a different role. And we see that all the time. And I think Shahrukh Khan, again, I agree with Swell. I wasn't particularly... Favorite SRK movies for both of you? And I, I, let me tell you, I, let me guess what Suhail's favorite uh, SRK movie is, Chak De India. <laughs> uh, so Chak De India is actually not even in my top three SRK movies. Oh, and no, that... Top three. So tell me your top three. And, and the reason I say is, is because my top three comes from those early days because that's when he was making that Im- impression on me. So it would be more of your uh, Dar, uh, Bazigar and Dilwale Dulhaniya Le Jayenge. You didn't have Kabhi Haan Kabhi Na. That's, that's my favorite. 
I, I liked it much later. When I watched Kabhiya Kabhina, I feel I was too young to really appreciate it. I liked it. I have seen it a lot more times now. And now I appreciate it a lot more. Kabhiya Kabhina is his best movie. Kabhiya Kabhina is his best movie. Again, I'd written this at one point of time. This, this was his riskiest movie. Because it's okay to be the villain when you have a script like Bazigar. Okay. It's okay to be a villain when the guy opposite you is Sunny Deol in that role. Because you basically have, you basically have the most powerful character. And you're a villain, you're a, you're a crazy lover. And everybody in India, you know, those days, it was like, oh, wow. But with the kind of character he played in Kabiha Kabina, which was a very unlikable character. It's not a villain. It was just, exactly. he was a weasel. And is it's very difficult for, for a Hindi movie star who's trying to become a Matini idol to play a weasel. That is the worst thing you can play, is to play a, weasel, you know, a loser. But, but not a Devdas like loser, a real loser. <laughs> Yeah, not a thing that's like a real loser. Like he, he's he's willing to do in relationships, and not in a very noble way, in a, in a very very petty way. So 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 that to to do that kind of a role, uh, and with respect to it, of course, he was lucky that the good role went to Deepak Tijori, who muffed it up, who couldn't do anything with it. And if you see, I don't know if it's by design or not, but Shahrukh Khan has a lot of movies with Deepak Tijori. Uh, in a yes, yeah, Deepak Tijori it. was there. So just just pointing out. Yes. And Madhuri Dixit so, chose Deepak Tijori uh, over Shahrukh Khan for some reason. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which again happens in the movies. Uh, but but that's Kabika Kabina was was is a great favorite movie of mine. Um I, I also like I like Chakde a lot. Um Bazigar I love because I've seen it so many times and every time I see it, there's I feel like I'm watching it for the first time. This is this is Bollywood the way I would like to remember it. Absolutely total entertainment. Of course, it's not a great movie. Of course, there is hamming. Of course, there's overacting. But it's so goddamn entertaining, man. From the first shot to the last. When he goes Madan Chopra on him. I mean, I just... Sometimes in a WebEx meeting, I just want to shout Madan Chopra like that. I just, it's just so much of a part of me. And that's why I can never really... That's why Shahrukh Khan... I mean, even now, I'll say, okay, I'm a fan of Shahrukh Khan. I'm a recovering fan of Shahrukh Khan. I've been, I've been disappointed with him. But there is still a part of me which is a which is a Shah Rukh Khan fan more than any other Hindi movie fan. I never really liked Amir Khan. Salman Khan has such a problem with the human being that that I can't really even appreciate uh, the gentle joys that he brings to the screen. Uh, so, but yeah, that's which again, Suhail, I know you have to leave. So I'll ask you the third last question is how do you manage? And I, this is something which I struggle with is that how do you manage uh, to be such a good social uh, family <laughs> man in America, where, where you have where you have such a, where you have a social psych circle, where you have like uh, Facebook pictures taken at the right time with my with my tripod um, and ten shots, and I put the right one up. So <laughs> it's your timeline. Your timeline is a picture of the idealized days. But no gym shots, no muscle shots. And would you please? <laughs> no, no, no. Whatever I see, I I envy. I I envy that. So I just want to tell you, how do you do it? For instance, I'll ask you a very simple question. I know this is a very, very, I mean, what answer are you going to give me? But you go to a Durga Puja where you don't know anyone. Okay, you don't know anyone. How do you communicate with people? What, what do you do? I, I don't know what my Facebook photos say, but I, this is true. I went to a Durga Puja and knew no one. Besides my wife and my daughter, I took a picture with me, my wife, daughter and uh, Pratima and came away. That's it. That's all I did. Arnav, I think that this would be a good time for us to transition into our what song. We have not heard it for a couple of weeks. 
so here's the song for this week nadiya mein nadiya darpan mein darpan saason mein saase dhadkan mein dhadkan and if you do know the song without googling scouts on do uh, write in to us the email is appodcast@talkingstuff.net and of course you can also tweet it to me or uh, to arnab so uh, in this flipped up uh, episode uh, arnab of course we've had our feature story we've had a interesting uh, talk with suhail so now let's move on to the first section our usual first uh, section which is uh, sure. this actually happened yes this actually happened okay so the first news item i want to discuss was and you know, we've been gone for two weeks and so many things have happened was the absolute implosion in the cbi i mean you kind of tend to think of cbi as this uh, you know super eff- not super efficient but this very secretive you know law enforcement agency we always like whenever anything happens we say let's have a cbi investigation i mean that's it that's that's the solution to everything is to have a cbi investigation you've never seen the cbi fight like this at least i don't recollect having seen them fight like this just like i haven't seen the supreme court justices fighting like this like they did a few months ago so for me the, the biggest thing and it's not really clear you know who's the villain and who's the hero of course depending on which news channel you listen to uh, you would have already formed your opinion but what what we can all agree is that nobody looks good at the end of this so you basically you have you know summarizing you have the cbi director astana uh, verma uh, and you have astana who's be, who's below him but he obviously is a man of the modi shah combined and it's and, and any of you who ever worked in a corporate environment know that possibly the worst kind of workplace dynamic is when you can supersede your boss that is verma and go directly to the boss's boss which is prime minister and this is a setup for an absolutely terrible relationship between a boss and the person who reports to him and i think with respect to astana versus verma this is exactly what we see and uh, while while it's of, of course of course you know you can obviously say but this is all happening under modi this never happened before of course this is happening under modi because before that we've always had we've always had these institutions if you think that these institutions have not been compromised by every political party then obviously you're living in a different world than i am um but what's happening with modi is that he is trying to and this is not this is not bjp this is modi because modi has been fighting the bjp and that's been obvious for some time with with lot of you know old bjp hands now publicly and they, they were kind of sniping at him for the last few years but now they have publicly come out against him especially the basically the old guard of the bjp and and i've said this before in the podcast that before it was always a cozy club it was always a cozy club between congress and sections of the bjp obviously they would they would debate and they would oppose each other in the public but then now at the end they would always you know have a drink at the press club and it will always be you know bhai bhai uh, but modi and uh, shah whether for good or bad you know they they're the outsiders they don't they don't care for this they want to break the system for good or again somebody would say it's cleaning the swamp somebody would say creating the swamp i'm not going to get into that debate but they're changing things and it's very evident that astana was their man inside a system which has always been supportive of of the culture let's say the the prevalent culture of delhi and uh, what's happened is and these kinds of uh, feuds have happened within within government institutions before they've been happening all the time they happen everywhere but what's happened is nowadays 
with uh, 24-7 news media and with social media, uh, people know that the way to really get traction is to go public. In the 1980s, if you had the same kind of conflict between um, two people in, in, in the CBI or in ED or in the income tax or in the Supreme Court, for instance, what would they do? There were only five or six national newspapers whose editors were on direct call with the prime minister. Okay, They could kill any story they wanted. So there was really nothing you could do. Now we have reached a stage where stories are unkillable. They're unkillable in this day and age. You can directly go to social media. You have news channels which are ideologically oriented to whatever orientation you want. So you'll always have a section of the media and you'll always have people who are willing to listen to whatever version of story you put out. So if you listen to Times Now, then the charge is that Verma has been going weak on the anti-nationals and hence this is the reaction to that. If you listen to NDTV, if you listen to, uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you read The Wire, you know, it's, it's because, and if you listen to what Rajiv Gandhi is saying, this is because of the arms deal, that, that Verma was going to look into the arms deal, uh, into Rafale, and, and, and this, is, this is really the fallout of that. Again, what I don't know, but the thing is, this is, these are people fighting, they have fought before. It's just that, regrettably, we have reached a stage where, uh, where everybody wants trial by media. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Game of Thrones, but it's like it's, it's like Tyrion saying, I choose trial by media. So everybody chooses trial by media because that's the most thrilling thing. And the great thing about trial by media <laughs> is no matter if you lose, you still win because there will be a part of the media which will always be for you. Moving on to the bomb scare. Uh, that you know, if you've, if you've been following the news in the U.S., several several Democrats and the CNN they they received uh, bombs, oh, yes. um, and the person has apparently been caught, at least a suspect. They're saying I, I don't think they have indicted him so far, and uh, he has been like there are pictures of him, you know, driving around a van with with like you know very very anti-democrat jail them up kind of posters. And of course, the news media here has blamed Trump for this. Now, this is this is a kind of a reflection of the same kind of reportage we find in India, where pretty much uh, the thing is so and so for follow uh, Modi follows so and so. Ergo, Modi is responsible for all behavior of this person. In this case, Trump wasn't following this guy, but the culpability of Trump is a little bit more in this case because this guy kind of again would he have happened? Would he have done this uh, without Trump? Yeah. It's unfair to hold Trump directly responsible for this. But some of the targets that this guy chose just happen to be the exact same targets that Trump um, that Trump chooses to target. And, and the way Trump, and this is often this spacious comparison uh, between Trump and Modi. And what I find recently is that some people, some people in the Indian extreme right, some people in the right who are solidly in the right, actually want Modi to be more like Trump. They think Modi has been has been has, has become like has been defanged by liberal Delhi, and that he's no longer the Modi they once loved. But but they look at Trump and say, look at look at him. He's never changed. He's as wild as he used to be. And that's in a way that's true. That's true. Trump hasn't changed, and Trump has consistently. There was one thing when you are as a you as a politician choose to say these things that you know CNN is fake news. You know these guys jail her up. Uh, but Trump, you know, as a president, he's 
and when he was campaigning, he told, you know, there were some hecklers and he told these guys, you know, that rough him up, I'll pay for your court charges. Of course, he said it in a mock way, but it was not really mock. You know, he basically meant that. And even after he became a president, now that's the important thing. Once you become a president, you cannot behave the same way that you behaved when you were not a president, because now you come with power. And, you know, we discussed this thing in last episode. We're talking about like how when you have power, the same behavior, which is okay outside power, isn't okay once you have the power. And uh, with power comes great responsibility. And unfortunately, Trump hasn't hasn't gotten that memo. So he has kept on targeting, you know, again, is CNN against him? Absolutely. But that's where the maturity of like, if, if every time Modi comes to make a speech and he says, he gives expletives about NDTV or says, you know, throw them out of the room, you know, he's obviously creating this kind of atmosphere. He's kind of, uh, he's, and again, Trump loves this because it gets his base riled up. But this is what happens when the base gets too riled up. This is what happens. And again, I'm not going to say that Trump is responsible for this because for me, it's important that we understand that in a democracy, there will always be provocative speech. There will always be provocative action. And you cannot prevent that from happening. What you, the culpability begins when you do something illegal. And this man has. So ultimately, he's an adult and he's responsible for his own actions. Just as Modi is not responsible for the actions of adults just because he follows them. It's the same thing holds true for Trump. I will give him that. But I'll also point out that the kind of absolute hateful rhetoric that Trump has engaged in as the president of the United States of America, again, not Trump, the individual, when you become the president and you voluntarily chose to become the president, your behavior has to change because you, because you come with a nuclear button. You're no longer a person. You are the leader of the United States, you're the leader of the biggest army in, in the world, and you come with the power of the office. You cannot do and say the exact same things, even if you might believe in it. And one thing that I think Modi has done right is that Modi has not, at least there is electoral rhetoric, but he has toned down some of his rhetoric once he's become the prime minister. And that's very, very important. It's not a question of etiquette, of being prime ministerial. It's a question of abuse of power. When you have a constitutional position, that gives you a certain amount of very natural power that you, you have to be cognizant of in your speech. Your speech then becomes restricted by virtue of you occupying that power. So it's not a question of does Trump have free speech? Yes, Donald Trump, the individual, does have free speech rights. But does Donald Trump, the president of the United States, have that amount of free speech rights? I don't think so. And on the transposition of a, uh, free speech, this brings us to the last item of the day, the arrest of Abhijit Ayer Mitra. Now, those of you who have not been following the story, Abhijit Ayer Mitra, who is a very prominent right-wing voice, uh, made some not-so-complimentary comments in a very sarcastic way about Orissa and or Oriya culture. And again, whether it was a good thing to say, whether it was like too provocative, again, this is again a matter of personal taste. You might not find it funny, you might find it offensive, and that's perfectly fine. Again, the thing with free speech is just like I have the right to make speech, you have the right to judge me on the basis of that speech. You know, one necessarily follows from the other. So it's not a question of you judging him 
for his speech, but it's a question of you arresting him and throwing him into jail for that. And what I found funny and ironic is because, because Abhijit Ayer Mitra is, is a right-wing voice, and there, there can be no other, there can be no other reason for that, is that you have the Supreme Court being awake, they, they, they are holding court after hours to make sure that those who have been indicted on much more serious charges, not indicted, but charged on much more serious charges, okay, so-called urban naxals, but whoever has been indicted, that they get house arrest, that, you know, they're saying, okay, prima facie, you don't have anything, you can make a case for it, but as long as you're making a case, these guys need to be at home, you can't throw them in jail. They wake them up to get this decision passed. And here you have a normal person making this absolute, and you cannot say that this was targeted hate speech. There was not hate. There's no, there's no element of hate in a speech at all. They're, at the worst, their joke's gone wrong. And this guy's in jail for that, as far as I understand. And not one, not one of our champagne liberals in Delhi took thought of it as, you know what? This is a free speech issue worth taking up. We should go to the Supreme Court. We should take this higher. That he cannot get a fair trial. Nobody considered this fact. And this is where I get, I mean, I, I find the dual standards, the duplicity. Freedom of speech is a problem. Okay, Just like, and if you remember, when the so-called urban Naxals were arrested, I, I personally said that, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be, at least in case of some of them, you know, really that amount of evidence for them to do this. And it's really not clear as to what the, you know, the plot to assassinate the prime minister is. It's been so vague. And it's, if it really is a plot, it should be treated with much more seriousness than it's being treated with. And there were a lot of, let's say, a lot of loopholes. And it was fine for this, the Supreme Court to take that decision. It was fine for the supporters of these people to get the Supreme Court to do this. But unfortunately, if you then you basically shut your eyes to what happened to Abhijit Ayan Mitra, then you're basically saying it's not the principle that you stand for. It's the person that you stand for. If the person is a friend, if a person is ideologically similarly aligned with you, then you're going to do this. And what this does is, is it basically calls into doubt everything that you have done. So we have, we have a lot of, we have a lot of outrage over the parliament attackers. We have a lot of outrage over people who are accused of, again, accused of having waged war against the Indian state. We have a lot of, we have a lot of legal action going on to prevent, to, to think of these people's rights. But we have absolutely nothing going on to think about the rights of somebody who essentially made a number of sarcastic comments against a state. That's all he did with no ulterior motive at all. And that I find extremely disappointing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish Suhail was around to, because I just wanted to ask you one question since we were talking about Shah Rukh Khan. In what are your expectations from zero? Any you have, have you paid any attention to that? I haven't paid any attention to it. I haven't even seen the. I, maybe I saw the trailer a long time ago. It's totally slipped my mind. The buzz is certainly not there, right? With it just being around the corner, I think it's oh, it's in December. So that gives it some time. Yeah. Yeah, that gives it some time. I but but then again, I, I yeah, no, I I mean, I guess I guess I haven't heard about it. Says something for the lack of hype around it, which is okay. I I just honestly feel I think one of the big problems with uh, with uh, Ravan was that they, they this was one of the 
many cases in which the hype was like so overdone. By the way, I didn't find Ravan that bad. He's one of the few people who didn't find it that bad. I actually wrote a review of it. Yes, it yes, that I don't remember that. I got abused by people who felt that I was being paid by Shah Rukh Khan to write that review. No, I wasn't. I actually felt that it, it had some it had some levels of consistency in the story, which is surprising for a Hindi movie, which which normally doesn't have a consistency. So I felt that okay, it was not a great film. It was not even a good film, but it wasn't wasn't as bad of movie as it was being made out to be. I think it got a lot of flack because it was aggressively promoted to the point that it basically irritated people and so they were basically looking to not like it and then it wasn't that likable and so it, it got much more negative press than i felt that it should have my wife and daughter liked the movie but i didn't no yeah i i, I liked i felt i mean again it was, it was it was bad but you know compared to christian compared to the other crap that we have seen for with passes on for science fiction it was it was not in the it was not in that same uh, it was not in that same league i thought it was a, it was a better movie than it for me the unforgivable part was having a fake rajni and passing him off as the real one oh yeah yeah so those yeah so yeah so again as i said they they they, they took a lot of missteps but yeah i still feel it got it for better yeah the by the way just for our listeners the book which uh, uh, suhel mentioned that's wind the winds behind the willows a sri lankan's life in a sri lankan's life in love with cricket so we'll have a link to that as well in the show notes the is that a rap or nab we done for this week yes it is okay yeah. so as usual you can listen to the podcast at uh, talkingstuff.net/app and uh, of course we did have the what song so please do uh, you know tweet to us and write in to us with with answers and the, we'll see you next week uh, <laughs> Thank you.